Is California the future of America? I'll talk about it on episode 767 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Hey, look, if you want a great Brian McClanahan gift, Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. This B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to advertise a show. Also, you can pick up any of my books, and I've got a lot of them, at amazon.com or wherever you get your books. And my most recent two, of course, I haven't published one in a little over a year, but are The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Those also make great gifts for yourself or your loved one for whatever the occasion might be, whether it's a birthday or uh, just because. So get those gifts. They do help support the show. You can also, of course, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review wherever you can. Also, leave a text review, whether it's on YouTube, if you're watching the video, or at Apple Podcasts, or go to anchor.fm and leave a text review. All those are great ways to support the show painlessly. Right? You've got, you can do it without even spending a dime just by rate, reviewing, and subscribing to it and letting people know you love it. All right, we're wrapping up the week this week. And, of course... If you didn't get my American Slavery class, you missed out. It might come back at some point. But make sure you check those McClanahan Academy emails because uh, I've got great classes there. And there will be some coming out, by the way, in some on-demand material very soon. So I'm just going to say that very soon. You're going to have some on-demand material. All right. Well, I mentioned at the top of the program we're going to talk about California. We always say that, you know, or I've said on this show many, many times, do we want to be governed by California? Do we want to be governed by New York? Do we want to be governed by Alabama? Do we want to be governed by Florida or Texas if you don't live in those places? That was the question the founding generation was essentially asking themselves as they uh, took up roost in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. And this was essentially uh, you know, skirted around, but Governor Morris brought this up. You know, if, if we're not really... A nation, what are we doing here? Now, I don't think anyone really has said, oh, okay, well, we are a nation, so let's go ahead and do this uh, Constitution thing. No, I mean, they all recognized they were a federal republic. And when you go to the ratification conventions, and for example, take Massachusetts, one of the hot debates in Massachusetts essentially was, and they didn't come out and say it outright, but do we want South Carolina governing Massachusetts? Do we want those people that we don't agree with in South Carolina governing our state? This was always the question about federalism. When Tench Cox writes his Freeman essays, do we want, uh, essentially, do we want uh, some other entity other than our own state legislature governing our everyday issues like education or health care? They didn't talk about health care back then, but education or jails, crime. Do we want somebody else determining how we want to have law and order in our state? And of course, culturally, no one in South Carolina or North Carolina or Virginia or Georgia wanted someone from Massachusetts or Connecticut or Rhode Island or New Hampshire or ultimately Vermont later on governing what they did. This was not something that they even considered to be valuable in the Union. The Union was intended for commerce and defense. That was it. The, the same way they conceptualized the Union under 
the British flag. I mean, we have to remember, Great Britain is a union. It's, it's a union. It's not a, a, a singular entity. It is a union of Scotland and England. And then, of course, you add in the colonial possessions, and it becomes a union. And so, even back as early as 1754, when Franklin proposed a union, and then you had people like James Otis proposing a union that was basically federal in nature before there was a break, before there was a secession in the American War for Independence. This is the kind of thing they were talking about. So this idea that some state or some people can then dominate the United States is something we have to pause and consider, whether you're on the left or the right. Now, if you're on the right, California governing the United States doesn't sound like a good idea, but you look at the current general government and what do we have? We have the Vice President of the United States from California. We have the Speaker of the House of Representatives from California. We have the leadership in the Senate from New York. And we have the President from ostensibly Pennsylvania. I mean, he always claims Pennsylvania is his home, even though Delaware was his home state for all those years. But Biden always considered himself kind of a Southern Democrat when he was younger. Now I don't even know what he is. He's just an old man who's senile. But for a long time, he was kind of a Southern Democrat. The old Biden uh, back in the 70s would have been preferable to the Biden now. But regardless, if you look at the Congress, essentially it's dominated by New York and California. Do we want that? Do Americans want that? Do we want New York and California governing for the United States? Now, we know there's a lot of good people in California, a lot of good people in New York, a lot of good people in every state. Do we want these states and the culture of these states, dominating states that don't have the same political culture, the same culture in general? Do we want that? And that's where federalism comes in. Now, this piece, it's by a man named Robert Stark. He has his own uh, substack. And this was sent to me by a listener. And the headline is, White Californians as a Prototype for America's Multi-Ethnic Future. So what Stark essentially is suggesting is California and the way that multiculturalism has happened in California is exactly the way it's going to happen in the rest of the United States. Now, I would make the case, and I'm going to just say this from the beginning, that this isn't necessarily true, that you find a multi-ethnic future in many of your urban areas in the South. It's, already, it's been there for a long time, longer than California. The South has been dealing with how to integrate various peoples for longer than any other part of the United States. Now, you could say, what about immigration in the North? Yeah, okay, so you had places like New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And what do they do? Well, they tried to boot them out, <laughs> send them West, get them out of here. I mean, this was, this was always the Northern response to use the West as a safety valve. Get these immigrants out of here. We don't want them here. Move them somewhere else. Or when it came to African-Americans, don't let them come here. Right? And once they got into the West, it was keep them out of here. So the South has been addressing an issue of how to integrate uh, on the terms uh, basis of race for longer than anywhere else. Now, multi-ethnic is not just race. It's also cultural. You have uh, people coming from all over the world into these areas. And what Stark is saying is that California has dealt with it in the way that it'll probably happen everywhere else. What he's essentially going after here is that you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, say, a race war in America and how people are going to react to this. And you've got all this resistance and xenophobia and all this stuff. And he's saying it's just not going to happen that way. It won't. It can't. California is going to be the way that, that white Americans accept the new America, which is, by the way, becoming much more multi-ethnic. 
Um, it, you know, white Americans used to be about 80% of the population. It's down to far less than that, about 60% now. So uh, over time, that's going to change even more. So he's saying California is what America is going to look like in, say, 20 or 30 years. That's how people are going to deal with it. Now, it doesn't mean this is going to be the case all over the United States because you still have places like New England, which is still lily white for the most part. I mean, people don't realize that. But you, you know, when, when you have New England, uh, it's, it's one of the whitest ethnic areas in the United States. Same thing with much of uh, the Midwest and the West itself. So it's really from the South up that you see much more of a multi-ethnic situation in the United States. And again, these places have been addressing this and people have been living side by side with each other for a long period of time and there isn't really much going on. So what Stark is getting at is that this is how things are going to happen. So let me read this piece. He says, California is a trendsetter for the nation and there is a cliche in how the populist right uses California as a harbinger for America's future as a third world dystopia. Well, I mean... Look, I've said it on this show. California and in, in parts of California are awful. And, and the cities in California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, these places are going to have to come to a reckoning at some point and how they deal with what they've essentially allowed to happen through their policies. You've got some real serious issues in these cities. He says, people underestimate how white California was not that long ago, and white Californians are now about one-third of the population, down from about 85% a couple of generations ago. However, California's reality counters the racist, racialist narrative, rights narrative of expecting a major white backlash once whites reach minority status. I don't ever think that was going to happen. White Americans generally are very tolerant people. And, I mean... Some of that has to do with the comfort that they have in life. Uh, this, is, this is true, but there are a lot of places in the United States where white Americans do face hard times. But white Americans are generally pretty tolerant. Uh, you get this idea if you listen to uh, you know, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee that uh, you know, white Americans are the greatest terrorists in America. Well, this is simply not true. White Americans are generally very tolerant people. The closest thing California came to a white backlash was in the 90s when the anti-illegal immigration measure Proposition 187, the affirmative action ban, and tough-on-crime policies that were a reaction to the crime wave and the L.A. riots. The white right is emotionally invested in narratives of conflict or collapse, but in California, white replacement has been more of a gradual, peaceful, and smooth transition, perhaps a soft, peaceful ethnic cleansing. Now, again, I think if you're going to... You're going to say ethnic cleansing in that sentence. That there's nothing soft or peaceful about that. I mean, it could just your your people are moving out of California. They're going to other places. Um, we saw this. I mean, throughout American history, when people didn't like what was happening in their area, they moved. And, and white Americans have done this in larger numbers than any other group. So you're seeing that. Of course, also you're seeing places that were once dominated by white Californians. Now you have large influxes of immigrants and other things into those regions. And so the white population has become a smaller percentage of the population. California has corrupt political leadership and many problems, such as urban blight, homelessness, income inequality, and rising crime. Now, uh, I'll say this. I mean, look, some of the corrupt political leadership is from the white people in California. Gavin Newsom is very corrupt. You have corruption all over the state coming from a lot of white politicians. 
Just because these people are white doesn't mean they're, they're uh, you know, against corruption or avoid corruption. The Biden crime family is a nice example of this. So corruption is government. It doesn't matter who's in it. Once you get powerful government, that's what you get. However, the right-wing media who bash California for clickbait and political reasons often portray the state as much worse than it actually is. Despite the rise in crime, California's crime rate is overall lower than it was in the 80s. Even the recent crime wave is disproportionately linked to African Americans who are a dwindling demographic, rather than to new immigrants. Also, crime is mostly confined to urban cores and lower-income areas, while much of California, including the suburbs, are still relatively safe. So this is one thing you are seeing in California. There is urban flight. People are getting out of the cities because of the large homeless camps, crime, all the things that are happening there. And I said, these cities are going to have a reckoning with this. What are they going to do about it? The cost of living there is extremely high. Uh, you've got policies that are drawing in people to these cities who don't want to work and uh, just, I mean, they just want to exist. You have this happening. You've got uh, real issues in California. But as uh, Stark is saying, if you get outside of that, well, California is still relatively nice uh, in certain parts of the state. He says, while I'm sympathetic to dissident right concerns about demographics, they often over-sensationalize racial problems to appear worse than they actually are. And I think this is true. Look, I mean, uh, even in anywhere you're talking about this, people tend to want to get along. No matter where they are, they want to get along and they want to exist. And again, particularly among white Americans, uh, this is the case. They just want to get along and just do what they can in society, and they're not trying to, to cause any problems. And I think you would say that for most groups as well. They just want to get along. To the degree there is anti-whiteness in California, it is much more of an institutional level, such as tech censorship, anti-white discrimination, university admissions, and woke corporations, as well as policies such as UBI for black birthing and proposed reparations, despite California never being a slave state. Of course, we just saw recently that San Francisco has now uh, had a commission that's recommended a $5 million reparation payment to uh, any black resident over 18. Of course, you have to trace your lineage back in San Francisco several generations, but this is what they're doing. So these are left-wing policies, and I think that, again, institutionalized, you're seeing more of this. And I just talked about the proposal by the representative from Texas that would uh, essentially do the exact same thing at a federal level. So... Uh, that that's going nowhere. But it was done that she did that essentially to have headlines, to grab headlines and point out, you know, the evilness of the Republican Congress. But anyways, he says, regardless, the main issues impacting white Californians are not so much overt racial hostilities, but rather practical issues, such as the cost of housing and job security, and especially social atomization and a lack of community and identity. Life in California is much closer to bowling alone than American History X, which is less sensationalist than stories about racial conflict. Overall, race relations between whites, Hispanics, and Asians are affable enough that whites might have less incentives to become more ethnocentric. And again, I, I think this is the case. White Americans tend to get along with people uh, in, in other groups. They just, they just want to have... Uh, a normal life. And these other things like housing and jobs, these are things that impact everybody, but they also impact white Americans. And you go to some of the poorest parts of the United States, which is Appalachia, and it's, it's dominated by white Americans. And so you've got issues of poverty and homelessness and things in those areas too. And you look at the, the drug issue in California, homelessness, a lot of those people are white Americans. So this is some of these problems that we're seeing are not relegated to a race. 
Uh, these are bigger problems than that. California's middle class is declining, and since 1970, the state's middle class share fell from 60% to slightly over half of the population today. Also, California's GINI index for inequality is one of the worst in the nation, close to Mississippi's. While there is a divergence between the upper and lower middle class, it is a stretch to say that California is totally bifurcated between the ultra-wealthy and the, and the destitute poor, even if it seems to be heading in that direction. Cringe neoliberals are partially correct that the death of the middle class can be a dog whistle for white dispossession. California has a growing non-white middle class, including recent middle class Asian immigrants, as well as a growing Latino middle class. For instance, Mexican Americans were stereotyped as poor as recently as the 90s, which is no longer the case. This rise in a non-white managerial class has increased competition for the white middle class and exacerbates elite overproduction. Uh, so <clears throat> this is something that's interesting as you see areas where you had, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, people from South America moving into the United States. They took jobs uh, in the construction industries and service industries, and a lot of them have worked in that. And then they had children and they became, they owned their own, say, Mason company. And their children now are going to college and they don't want them working in the Mason industry, being a Mason. They don't want them being a bricklayer. They want them doing the managerial stuff. They want to they want to actually be the engineers or the supervisors on, on site. They don't want them doing the, the grunt work. So you're seeing that a lot. Same thing with uh, Asian Americans who have moved in. Uh, they want their children to go and do the, uh, do the middle class jobs and the managerial jobs. That's what they want. Now, as the piece points out, a lot of these people are not being assimilated. That is, that is the issue more than anything else. How do these people? How are we integrating these people into an Anglo-American tradition? And this is where you know someone like Michael Anton. This is the interesting part about it. Would say, well, yeah, they can't. I can't fit. He would say he can't fit with an Anglo-American tradition because his family is an Anglo-American, and all these other people can't fit. But that's not what the founding generation talked about. They actually made some comments on this. As long as these people would essentially integrate into the standard positions in American society, namely understanding the American political tradition and not rock the boat culturally, they were more than welcome to come in. And you look at someone like Jefferson and the Republicans who were opposed to the alien acts. I mean, they talked about immigration as being a positive for the United States. So there was certainly some of that in the founding generation, but they wanted people to assimilate. They didn't want them to simply keep their old identity. There had to be something else to it. And for a very brief period of time in American history, essentially the Great Depression to the 1940s, you had very limited immigration in America. And so in the 1950s, uh, you had this very strong melting pot ideology in the United States. And then the 1960s happened. And of course, you started seeing vast numbers of immigrants, particularly coming from uh, Latin America and Central America. And so that created a, a different dynamic in America. So he says, America has vulnerabilities such as, the, as polarization and major economic and financial problems, but the white right is naive to assume that a non-white America will collapse. And again, I, I agree, it's not going to. In the case of California, Latinos take on the economic role of the white working class, while Asians of the white professional class. This model of a Latino working class and an Asian managerial class works in maintaining a fairly functional and economically prosperous society, yet where whites play a more marginal role. This dichotomy is epitomized in the city of San Jose as far as being safe and prosperous, yet where whites have been dispossessed and are fairly 
atomized. So you don't have white, large white communities in San Jose anymore. While there are countless examples of incompetent affirmative action bureaucrats and corporate DEI grifters, right-wingers relying upon the narrative of non-whites being incompetent is bad optics and ignores the many people of color that many people of color can compete against, outcompete whites. Not to mention that overall immigrant uh, uh, silver, uh, striver culture, which is great for the state's GDP, but not necessarily for whites' economic security. It is more important to emphasize that whites face a hyper-competitive rat race with much less economic security than in the past. Not to mention the lack of economic niches and patronage networks that recent immigrants have. So again, he's pointing out, well, it's not who you are, it's who you know, and these kind of things. And as you start seeing other groups come in, well, they're going to hire people they know and that they, they've networked with and these kind of things. So there's, there's nothing going on here that I think is out of the ordinary. And again, he's right that making some of these cases isn't always necessarily correct about the attacks made on some of the things happening in these states. And you see it, it's not just in California, in other parts, particularly in the South, where you have a lot of the same things happening. Well, seeking out less diverse communities is a factor for white flight. Overall, white demographic decline in California is due to the cost of living and childcare costs, such as school tuition, making family uh, formation expensive, even for the moderately wealthy. The high cost of living is due to a combo of immigration and nimbyism straining supply, not in my backyard. It is also important to point out that California's non-white population would also be declining if not for offsets from new immigrants. Despite major problems, California has many traits that make it desirable. And don't underestimate how many affluent people still want to live in California, especially in desirable coastal areas. For instance, the exodus disproportionately impacted the lower classes rather than the wealthy. Look, one of the most beautiful places in the world is San Diego, California, in terms of climate and what you would have there. I mean, it's a wonderful place, very expensive. This is why people can't go to California, because of the cost. I think he's exactly right about that. And of course, as the cost goes up and what you face in costs, then family size declines and what people can do declines. That's another issue. Why is the cost disproportionately high? Well, because of demand, but also... You've got you know, costs of, of education, other things. Why is that going up? And there's, there's government issues involved in that. So a lot of things happening here. Uh, but I think he's, it doesn't matter who you are in America, you're facing these issues. California is uniquely rootless, which is exacerbated by the high cost of living. This is a really important point, rootless. Tradition matters, and California lacks a lot of that because people have left uh, and you have all these people coming in. There's no roots there. There's nothing holding people to it. Roots matter. And if California is rootless, that matters. White Californians in particular are uniquely individualistic, perhaps one of the most individualistic groups of people on earth, making them disproportionately impacted by atomization for those who aren't connected to a close-knit community. While deaths of despair disproportionately impact rural areas in the Jefferson region, it is more common for downwardly mobile middle-class whites to leave for somewhere cheaper or to stay but not have families, including a lot of the apartment-dwelling hipsters now reaching middle age. Again, no families, cost, no culture, no rooted culture, no traditions, none of that. It's going to matter. And you have immigrant communities come in that try to keep these things, and that creates, uh, this, this is where culture matters in America. When you don't have this thing that keeps you together, political culture, culture, it matters. This is where you can't have America as an idea, which is basically what these people believe. When you start pushing that America as an idea, you lose all the tradition, all the culture. That's one of the most important things you can take away from this piece. 
This white downward mobility in California is encapsulated by a commentary from my friend DK, pointing out that, the, that his extended family are affluent Bay Area progressives and they support all alternative lifestyles. They recognize that only a minority of their descendants will retain their class standing and those who can't require non-traditional pass. It's a way of reducing competitive pressure for positional resources. Only two of my cousins were successful enough to marry, buy a house, and have children, and that required seriously high-paying, high-status positions. The rest kind of live as a marginal bohemian lifestyle. California's hyper-competitive environment is especially bad for family formation, which is relevant to breeder selection theory. The theory hypothesizes that demographic groups that undergo Darwinian selection pressures earlier may have advantages over other groups in the long run. Even if white decline persists for the next few decades, the subset of whites who remain in California long-term will likely be more resilient, selected to withstand anti-nationalist selection pressures by the shred, shred, shedding of whites who are more atomized and less resilient, though, uh, through childlessness, out of marriage, and, and the exodus. I expect this trend to become more pronounced in the future rather than just the assumption of endless white flight and decline. It is also possible to see the tables turn where white Californians evolve to become more tribal while the descendants of non-white immigrants, non-Western immigrants, become more atomized as they assimilate. So see, this is where I would say it's not really assimilation. It's that you have these groups that have a culture and we're, he's missing that, right? Now he's, he's getting to it here, but he's missing the real problem. The rootlessness is the problem, but... It's the idea of America overall, overall, that really is the issue in California. The ideology driving California and driving the United States really is the problem. He says, there is a sorting out process between what kinds of whites leave or stay. Overall, a lot of white conservatives, as well as transient young liberals, are leaving. And many white liberals who stay won't pre reproduce, while those who stay tend to have stronger professional, social, or family ties. Also, an upper-middle-class white liberal starting a family in California is more resilient than a Trump supporter leaving for a red state. There's a bifurcation between childless white liberals and those whites who stay in California and start families and tend to be, who tend to be suburban, affluent, and moderate liberals, as wealthy white liberals are often more conservative in their lifestyles than their middle-class counterparts. Even in California, where there is an overall decline in white family formation, affluent white suburbanites tend to have higher shares of families and other demographic groups, and well-off suburban communities are starting to function as white-topios or de facto enclaves. So he's saying there is some of this. But again, if there's no culture, if it's just identity by race, what do you have? I mean, this is something that when you read Hackett Fisher and Albion Seed, you had all these different white groups in America in the, in the 17th century, in the 18th century. But there was a culture. You had people from the South move into California and places like Bakersfield, and there was a Southern culture to it. You got to have something besides identi identity and race to keep you together because there has to be a culture. And this is where these other groups coming in, if they're coming in in large numbers from different areas and, and kind of collectively will form a culture because of where they're from. If you don't have that, none of this other stuff matters. People miss that. Um, so uh, the rest of this is, is okay. Um, but I wanted to point that part of it out. Uh, and I, the 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 entire piece, it would take me a lot longer to get through this, and I've gone long on a couple of episodes this week, so I don't want to finish this out and and uh, read the rest of it. Uh, but one of the things that I hope you take away from this is that culture matters. And so, you know, rooted play a place matters. And there is a tradition in America, and if you have this ideology, America is an ideal, a proposition nation, you're going to get stuff like this. It's not just that people move into an area. A lot of these 
people moving in are keeping their culture and they're not assimilating because there's nothing there to assimilate to. And if we don't have a drive for, say, uh, you know, Anglo-American political tradition or uh, these kind of strong cultures that are important in different areas, you get this. And you see it in any type of transient region, whether it's a military area where you have people coming in and out. You start to lose the culture. They bring in their own culture and then basically what you have is no culture because you have all these other cultures and it's kind of like, well, what do we have here? Nothing. Uh, you get chain restaurants, you get chain stores, and there's no culture left. And I think that's probably, I mean, that's what you're seeing in California in a lot of ways. So in other areas like cities, you do have the people bringing their own culture in and they make that. And so just the culture becomes multiculture, which isn't really a cohesive glue to an area. Uh, and that's important. Right, and it's you know, and all of your major urban areas in the history of the world had this problem. Rome had this problem. You know, London. I mean, you're seeing it. Paris. You're seeing all your major urban areas address this, unless they haven't had a lot of outside influence. If it's just their own people moving in these areas, well, that's something else. Like say, Mexico City. Um, so uh, this is very important to understand as you get these multicultural groups and what that does to overall culture. It makes it decline, or there isn't really a, a, a solid uniform culture. It's just whatever everything is. Um, so having that glue is important. It's not race. It's background, traditions, customs. These things matter. All right. So that's it for the Brian McClanahan Show this week. If you want to catch me for a fifth time, get the Abbeville Institute podcast. Go to abbevilleinstitute.org. You can pick up that. It's all things Southern. I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.